From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. If you have been on a flight recently and it did not arrive on time, there is, well, you are not alone because a new report says this country's two biggest airlines ranked last when it comes to on-time performance among large North American carriers. Aviation data company, company Asirium says almost 28% of Air Canada flights, or more than 8,700, landed late in the month of October, placing that company ninth out of the 10 airlines on the continent and the report also found that WestJet came last with nearly 29% of arrivals touching down late, defined as more than 15 minutes after the scheduled arrival. Well, Martin Firestone is joining us now, president of Travel Secure Incorporated as well. He is a travel insurance expert. Martin, thank you so much. So great to have you back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Are you surprised at all by the numbers and looking at how much or I suppose how many times these airlines weren't on time? And this looked specifically at last month. Not at all. Actually, I think this is the classic half empty, half full glass. I see light in this, if you can believe it, Uh, in the sense that it's an improvement from what it was. The fact that they're second last and last amongst other airlines is all relative to potentially terminals and air traffic controllers and baggage and a whole bunch of things that cause the domino effect that we've always talked about. Right. And, and I was curious, and I know the report kind of touches on this, but, but the fact that, yes, it is the two biggest airlines in Canada, but what about all of the other factors, many that, that you just mentioned, that, that are, are beyond the control of the airline? Yeah, you know what I'm seeing a lot of lately, and it's happened to me personally. We were leaving for Ireland on a family golf trip, and literally at 3 o'clock that afternoon of a flight that was supposed to leave at 7, the flight was just cancelled. This is becoming more and more apparent as time goes on. A lot of it has to do with pilots and staffing and amount of hours they can work. So if for some reason it got slowed down at this gate, they didn't get off till X and then you have Y, then you have a problem where they can no longer fly because they've exceeded their hours of time. That's a big problem that we're starting to see a lot of lately, which could cause some of these numbers also. Uh, when I was flying in uh, September, coming back, everything was delayed and I kept getting the text messages from Air Canada saying, you know, apology. Well, I don't think it even said apologies. It just said due to a technical issue, this flight is now leaving. It was, you know, the first one was four hours later. Then it was, it was several hours after that. Uh, is it when you, when you get that update, I mean, there's nothing you can do as a passenger in that moment other than, than replan and, and take the later flight that, that they've put you on. But is it enough? Do you think that, that the airlines, all they really say is because of a technical issue? Yeah, they don't get into any detail whatsoever. And initially, when you get that email, again, in my case, it didn't give you any options. That came about an hour later, and those options weren't even on the same day. They were on the next day in the evening, getting into Dublin on the day after that. So it has incredible consequences, not only in just getting to the destination, but then missing out on the first couple of days of a planned trip that you paid a lot of non-refundable dollars for. So it, it's quite intense what can happen if a flight in fact gets delayed is it we i thought that it was supposed to be getting better in that airlines were supposed to be be doing better for passengers there were there were more rights of passengers to, to not be inconvenienced or at least to be compensated if things like this were happening yeah we're back to that same old question is it within their control or with 
out of their control in the sense that if it's going to be because of weather related or something to do with the terminal or something to do with air traffic controllers, that could be problematic still. And you know what? We still have not addressed that problem yet, although they're talking about it, but it's just nothing that I have seen has put them on the hook now to take care of your, your costs and your compensation. Do you think that would change things? Would they work a little harder to be on time if there was a financial penalty? No. I, a, a personal question, I actually think a lot of things are with, uh, not within their control. I'm, I'm looking for the right word. But basically, I think they are trying, but there is issues with respect to everything backing up. If there's just one delay, then the incoming flight is delayed. The outgoing flight is delayed. That's the biggest problem is that it's a fine-tuned machine at best. Now you throw in tremendous amount of travelers and then a problem here and there, and then you've got the situation that we're in right now. And, and like you said, one of the, the bright thing to this is the outcome, even though they came in last, uh, looking at Air Canada, it does show an improvement from what it had performed the performance the previous month. But that said, still looking at other carriers in North America, uh, they were, so the two airlines, the on-time percentage of just 70% is a lot less than this report looking at some of the other carriers, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, Alaska, American they all came in above 85%. So why would why are some airlines able to do so well in this, but the two big ones in Canada are, are so far behind? Yeah, therein lies the question, and I don't have an answer. I'm supposedly an expert. No one can put their finger on it. To the best of my knowledge, it would have to be with the terminals in the country itself. Maybe they're just more geared to moving traffic through those terminals quicker than they are here. I mean, I can't definitively answer that, but there's no question that many flights the people are on are all getting delayed, and it all has to do with the incoming flight that's your flight to go out. And if it gets delayed, then your flight's delayed, and so on and so on. What do you advise people to do then? Again, I know you uh, you deal with travel insurance and try to make sure people are, uh, are have their plans go as smoothly as possible. Uh, I mean, again, when I was flying in September, one of one of my flights to get to where I was getting my Air Canada flight, I had left myself about three hours, and I was I realized I was so stressed out about that. I actually changed it because it wasn't part of the Air Canada trip, so I knew if I was late, it would be on me that I would have to deal with it if I missed the Air Canada flight. So I changed it and actually went a day early just to make sure that I would get there in time. But what do you tell people or or what do you advise people to do to try and avoid or or how to deal with these scenarios? Yeah, it's no doubt that getting to the airport on time or early two hours, three hours for international is important. But then again, no matter how early you are, if the plane's not on time, that's not going to really change matters. The end of the day, on my insurance side now talking for now, I always encourage interruption and cancellation in the event that the plane does get delayed. Not about getting reimbursed as much for the plane because you're still going on the flight, but getting reimbursed for not getting to that port on time and getting on the cruise ship per se. Therefore, you have to catch up with the cruise. These things are costs that are all covered if you buy cancellation and interruption insurance. So more than ever, I think the importance of insurance has taken on a whole new role in this crazy world we're in now between weather-related issues and, and, and political unrest and things like that. So no doubt insure a trip if it is a non-refundable amount of any nature that's substantial.
Because and you mentioned cruise ships, and, and I would think people maybe are, are even adding a day or two and and taking on the cost of of doing that just to make sure you get there in time. Because even if you do have the insurance, if the flight is late and goes the next day, you still have to, don't you? Even if you're even if it's insured and you get compensated, you're still not getting on that boat. No, um, I think uh, quite the contrary. The whole idea of insuring in that matter is if you didn't get on the boat. Now, I'm talking of a typical cruise that goes from port to port. You can catch up with it at the ensuing port. Of course, if it's going across the Atlantic, you're not going to find it. But but typically, if a flight got delayed and you didn't make the, the embarkation, you could ultimately catch up with it and the cost of something like that could be in fact covered by your insurance. All right. Still, still a hassle though, like you said, depending on when the next port, where the next port is and how long the ship's going to be traveling. No, you've got the, the right answers, what you said earlier. You can't fine tune and, and, and try to do something. Is two hours enough time for us to make the connecting flight? Those words went out a long time ago. You can't be in that world anymore. You have to, as you say, it's a safe bet to go the evening before something like that so that you don't run into a problem if your flight gets delayed or canceled. And are you seeing more people? I know we've been looking at the numbers and the numbers coming back pretty close to pre-pandemic. And so is that one of the big changes then as far as people now just have to work that in as part of their travel? Or what else are you seeing as far as flight delays and things that are different now? Well, there's no doubt that uh, travel has come back with a vengeance. And with that, especially this uh, U.S. Thanksgiving weekend, you're seeing it all over the United States, tremendous record numbers. So more and more people are traveling than they ever have before. And also, flight schedules have been reduced for a host of reasons. And there isn't as many flights as there was. So the planes are more full. And therefore, if there is problems with staffing and issues like that, that also adds and causes delays. All right. Something to keep in mind. And like you said, though, it's still not great that the Canadian airlines are at the bottom of this list, but things are getting better or they are improving. So I guess we can kind of hope or passengers can hope that that continues. I see light at the end of the tunnel in this. It's getting better all the time. Hopefully checking in and security and all those things. They've done a lot of new things in place now that should make the experience much more pleasant than it's ever been before. All right, Martin Firestone, thank you so much. Great to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Well, thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, earlier today, Vancouver's Auditor General released a report. It includes several recommendations, and it takes a look at the revenue management at the Vancouver Park Board. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Vancouver's Auditor General, Mike McDonnell. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. Uh, Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, Thanks for inviting me on your show. Well, before we get into uh, the findings and the recommendations, what specifically were you looking at when it's looking at uh, at the park board? Well, the park board collects fees for the different services that it provides, and some of those fees recover all the costs in whole or in part, and other fees are intended to generate surplus revenues to fund other services. The, The objective of our audit was to determine if the park board operated an effective framework to achieve its overall revenue, uh, excuse me, revenue-related objectives. And is it something that your office, as the Auditor General, this is something that you do automatically, or do you do this when somebody raises concerns? Well, in this case, uh, I don't have an automatic right of access to the park board. I was invited in 
by the elected park board commissioners to to conduct a performance audit. Initially, I was looking at how the park board or was going to look at how the park board interface with uh, with the city and how it provides services overall. But as we uh, as we dug in a little bit, we determined that this was probably a, a really good time to look at revenue management. All right. And when you talk about revenue management, does this go back to how it was managed with previous park boards as well? Or were you looking at a specific or a more current or recent time period? Uh, we were looking uh, between uh, 2018 and 2022 um, and how the, uh, yeah, 2018 to 2022 and how, how uh, revenues were managed. So that would span to the previous uh, elected board as well as the current board. All right. And just to end uh, the fees specifically, was it all fees that the park board collects? And or, or and I know in, in the report, it talks about things like golf courses, whether or moorage fees at some of the civic marinas, uh, rec centers. Was it looking across the board at, at everything as far as fees that the park board collects? You'd be absolutely correct. Uh, on average, in that period, the park board collected about $56 million in fees. Hmm. All right. So what did you find then about uh, the revenue management, how the park board was collecting and, and getting these fees? Well, we determined that, well, the park board had some processes uh, to inform fee setting. It didn't operate an effective revenue framework overall. So, for instance, fee setting wasn't supported by an evaluation of the full cost of services. Also, the park board didn't define the level of service it intended to deliver for, for all of its revenue-generating activities. The fee-setting process itself was open to the public, and, that, and that's good, um, but it didn't have a structured method for determining where user fees should or shouldn't be charged and what proportion of costs it should recover. And so when you say it wasn't kind of really looking at that when setting the fees, so was it setting the fees too high or too low or a mix of both? Really can't say whether it was too high or too low, uh, but you know where the park board said their intention was to recover costs, they didn't really have a good understanding of what those full costs were. Uh, how they had set fees, it was usually a percentage that was added on every year, uh, but they didn't have any records to determine whether that base that they started with was appropriate or not. Doesn't that seem a bit strange that if, especially you say, given that if the goal is to recover the fees or to recover the costs, don't you kind of need to know what the costs are? Understanding the cost and understanding the full cost of delivering the service that includes the maintenance and upkeep of assets is absolutely fundamental to determining what full costs actually are. And then if the the goal was to, to collect full costs through fees, then charge the appropriate fee. And so when you found that, it wasn't really looking at the, the cost or what it was recovering, but it did still follow the annual fee update or kept that percentage of the update. And, and people knew what that was. That part was was made public. But did it use things as far as the rate of inflation or looking at what, maybe what other areas? I know there's only a park board in Vancouver, but did it look or, or did, did you see or whether or not the board was looking at, say, other cities or other similar uh, scenarios on what the fees were there? Yeah, the, the fee updates on an annual basis were driven, I think, to the greatest extent by inflation, but they also looked at how uh, the fees that were being charged in, in, in competing jurisdictions that are offering similar services. So that they were looking you know, beyond more than just the backyard, if you will. Uh, but if you're going to say something is full cost recovery, you kind of need to know what those full costs are.
Right. And I would imagine, too, there are some uh, things that the park board provides where there aren't fees, whether it's, say, parking in some areas that are under the park board jurisdiction. Uh, did, did you look at the fact that there are some areas where, where maybe the fees were going up every year and then there were some areas where there were no fees charged at all? Well, that's really the domain of the park board. It's their purview to determine what fees to charge and and what services they should be charging fees for. So we didn't look at that because that's getting into the policy area that is quite rightfully the, the domain of elected officials. Okay. Uh, I know you also looked at the relationship, again, this is the only elected park board, but looked at the relationship between the elected park board and the elected city council in that they still need council approval when they're spending, when they're spending that money that comes in from those fees. What did you find about that relationship? Yeah, thanks for that. The, the, The park board's overall funding structure is set out in the Vancouver Charter, and it requires it to obtain city approval for all expenditures, including the expenditure of funds that it generates. So it determines what fees it's going to charge, which is fine, but it can't actually spend that money without council's say-so. So the audit found that while the park board had strategies to to guide the delivery of of its uh, services, it hadn't proactively engaged council to ensure that its priorities were aligned with available funding. And was that alarming or, or was that surprising at all to you? Well, I think it's important to, that, that there be that level of communication. Um, if, beyond just the budget every year that, that the park board submitted to council, I would think if, uh, if you're developing a multi-year strategy with potential financial commitments that goes out many years into the future, that that engagement with council, if you will, bringing them on board, being perhaps your biggest cheering section, would be something that uh, any park board would, uh, would strive for. Right. Um, when you talk about the timeline as well, that this takes a look at, at the fees and the revenues from 2018 to 2022, uh, with the pandemic in that time frame as well, and we know a, a lot of people weren't doing things, things were definitely different. Do you think that had an impact on your findings? I don't think so. This, this really does seem to go back a number of years. And while I can't speak to anything beyond the audit period, uh, we, didn't see, we didn't have any evidence to suggest that this was a new phenomenon. We are continuing now with Mike McDonnell, Vancouver's Auditor General, and talking about the just-released performance audit report. And this is taking a look at the revenue management of the Vancouver Park Board. And Mike, thanks so much for doing this. Just before the break, we were talking about the report and what you were looking at specifically. I'd like to get into the recommendations. So what did you recommend to the Park Board, given what you found about the fees and the revenues and what, what was kind of missing? Well, the report contains uh, six recommendations, Jill, in in four areas. Um, First, we've recommended that the Park Board should improve its understanding of the full cost to deliver services, as well as the level of services that it intends to deliver in in all areas. The the two are related. Second, we've uh, recommended that uh, the Park Board should develop a more rigorous process for determining the extent to which services are going to be subsidized. Um, These two areas, uh, the full cost and level of service and and level of subsidization, are absolutely essential for understanding what the appropriate level of fees that that the Park Board wants to charge. Um, Thirdly, we recommend that the Park Board should improve how it monitors the performance of its service areas, including defining performance measures and reporting on on its actual financial performance so it can see has it achieved its revenue generating objectives for each line of service or not. And lastly, we recommended that to to help ensure that funding is made available for the implementation of its uh, strategic priorities. 
um, that the Park Board should proactively engage City Council as it develops current and future strategies. So, for instance, the, the Think Big strategy that uh, is currently being worked on. And I, I know the Park Board has responded and thanked you for doing this. By, by taking on these recommendations or by, by, um, by agreeing to them or accepting them, how long do you think it would take until there's some improvement or to, until we see kind of um, the, um, these being adopted, these being brought on, until you see changes? Well, I'm, I'm really pleased that Park Board Management has accepted the recommendations and provided an action plan, which we published in its entirety in the report. Uh, just in terms of the Park Board itself, we'll be presenting our findings to the Park Board a, a week from today at their regularly scheduled meeting on, on the evening of Monday, the, uh, the 27th. Um, so as far as the timing goes, um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the Park Board brings our recommendations to life in the coming months. Uh, we do a semi-annual follow-up process. So we'll be checking in with them uh, in June of next year to, to see how things have gone and for them to, uh, to explain to the City Council the progress that they have or haven't made. And looking at the report as well, and just going back to some of the, the areas of, of places where the board gets revenue, I know the Stanley Park train is on there. That's been a bit contentious, being as it hasn't been running for quite a while. Concessions have been going under a bit of a facelift, or, or, or there's been there have been discussions as far as should they be expanded and what kind of things. Was that part of your audit or looking at that as well? Absolutely. I mean, to my mind, park board assets are, are a legacy from past generations that are under the care of the current generation for our benefit and the benefit of future generations. So um, where the park board's determined that it wants to recover full costs, you know, such as for the train, uh, we've recommended that it consider all costs, including maintenance and, and upkeep, to keep the assets uh, working in, in, in good condition um, so that they're available not just for today but for future generations as well. And and being more transparent, or or at least when you talk about the full cost as well, and I know that's dealt with in some of the recommendations, uh, is that one, how difficult do you think, or how challenging is it to go from what you discovered or what you found the Park Board is doing to really looking at those full costs and making sure the fees are, are matching what, what the Park Board is dealing with and how, uh, how they're going to recover those costs? Well, I mean, really it's about, it's about transparency, it's about... Uh, comprehensiveness. Um, we, we've, the, park board, the park board itself makes the decisions around fees, and we're just suggesting that those decisions need to be better informed. Better information is needed on the total cost, um, understanding the extent, and, and understanding the, the appropriate subsidy to, to apply. Um, a lot of that information is available, but some of it isn't yet, and so the park board does have some work ahead of itself uh, in order to, to bring the recommendations to life. Do you think, though, it could potentially lead to higher fees if the Park Board does this and does take a better look or a better analysis of the true costs and finds that they're higher? Would the, the answer to that then be, oh, well, I guess we have to raise the fees even more than what we've been doing? Well, the current situation is that some fees are intended to recover more than the cost of services uh, that, uh, as it stands, with surpluses that are, that are used to subsidize the cost of, of other services that, uh, where fees are below cost. These are policy decisions that are part of the Park Board's mandate, and it's up to them to decide what is appropriate and, and the level of subsidy that should be provided for any particular service. What we said is that the information used to inform these decisions just needs to be improved, and there should be better clarity around the extent of subsidization for each service. All right. Well, it's a very uh, interesting report and interesting findings. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing more of this information. Jill, thanks for having me. Have a great day.
Well, if you were going to be voting in a federal election today, do you know how you would vote? And is it different from how you have cast your ballot in the past? The latest information released from the nonprofit Angus Reid Institute takes a look at how people are feeling about the different federal parties and how they might cast their ballots. And joining me to talk about these numbers is Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Jill. So you asked people how they would vote federally. What did you find? Uh, Well, it feels like another day, another poll. But what it tells us is that there is another, more data coming out confirming what we've been seeing uh, over the past several months, which is a significant and widening lead for the federal conservatives over the federal liberals. So at this stage, uh, if we were to see an, uh, an election anytime soon, And I would just caveat that I actually don't expect to see a federal election anytime soon. But if one were held very shortly, uh, the Conservatives would be in in not just majority, but almost landslide territory at 41 percent, with the Liberals well back, 14 points, 13, 14 points back at uh, at 27 percent. And when you look at those numbers and the leading the Conservatives ahead by 14 points, it wasn't that long ago that survey polling done by by your organization as well showed the two pretty close, wasn't it? Uh, March 2022, so a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, both parties were tied at 35%. January of 2022, almost two years ago, it was the Liberals who had a significant five, six point lead over the Conservatives. So what has happened is really the scripts have flipped for both parties. And and it's not just that the Conservatives are ahead, but they are ahead by a lot. And most importantly, they're gaining a significant amount of momentum. We haven't seen the Conservatives with this much of a gap over the Liberals since April of 2019, more than four years ago. And that was the height of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. What I want to say, Jill, is that two things, well, really one thing is driving this, and it's the cost of living crisis. We've not been able, we've not seen the the Conservatives uh, be able to not only take a lead but hold on to it in any kind of sustained fashion until the cost of living crisis hit and then all of a sudden uh, ideological issues issues around climate change or gender equality or or racism or all of the other things that that ideologically really separate out the conservatives from the liberals that's all kind of taken a back step and what what is really coming to the fore are pocketbook issues And how much of an impact or or how much is the carbon tax playing into this or or a factor in how people are deciding how they will vote? Well, the the Conservatives have been very clever in turning carbon pricing into the latest angle on cost of living. Carbon pricing is something that, you know, we've been living with the B.C. model in in this province, Jill, for many, many years now. Uh, It's not really been a a huge uh, political factor, but it is something that that, uh, gets talked about a little bit in B.C. But nationally, when the opposition leader starts talking about how this is now an unaffordable uh, uh, item that that uh, and an unaffordable tax that Canadians just 
can't make it meet and it's and it's problematic for them, uh, it starts to become uh, a driving issue, a talking point, a decision point for voters as they take stock of well, what what party is best for me? And we're seeing carbon pricing folded into that. So two in five. Uh, Canadians now say that carbon pricing would be a significant factor or driver in how they cast their vote. And those who are most likely to say this are people who are leaning towards the Conservative Party. In other words, folks who are looking to see this tax either curtailed or put on pause or axed and, and see more exemptions for it regardless. And I don't know if the questions went into it, into this level of detail, but do do you get the impression or do we know, is it people um, that may have been in favor of it before now looking at it saying, well, it's not actually having an impact on emissions, so it's time to axe this tax or like you said, cost of living and maybe you still even support it. But if you can't make ends meet, you're happy to see it go. All of those things. And so, yeah, you're, you just hit three nails on the head right there, Jill. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, going back to 2018, 2019, climate change was seen as the number one issue among Canadian voters. It was more than 40% of Canadians said, this is the number one issue that I am most concerned by, most seized by, it's most important to me. Today, in November of 2023, five years later, the number of people identifying climate change as a top issue has dropped to, to just over 20%. It's dropped in half. When we ask people about climate change, the vast majority in this country agree that it is real, it is human-caused, and what's going on with it represents a crisis. But then when we say, look, recognizing that everything is important, you know, and you can't always have everything at the same time, you can't always pay for everything at the same time, what should take priority right now, even at maybe at the cost of seeing some climate policy take a back seat? Or do you keep going in terms of carbon pricing, keep increasing it, even if it means taking uh, a harder line on cost of living and making it that much harder for households? Canadian households are, are even though they're supportive of, of climate change strategies uh, and, and maybe largely supportive at one point uh, in the past around carbon pricing, they're now saying, sorry, no, cost of living needs to be the number one priority and there is some skepticism as to whether uh, carbon pricing is working. And I would say that all of that really constitutes um, a failure to communicate on part of the federal liberal government because uh, so many millions of households actually do receive rebates in this country, but you wouldn't know that if you talk to Canadians, and we have. Many of them, millions of households actually don't know that they're receiving rebates or if they are, they, they think that they're paying more than they are getting back. And in some cases, that's true, but in many cases, it isn't. So I think people are kind of, you know, operating in this fog about how much they pay, whether they get a rebate, and the lack of, of understanding or education around that is definitely having an impact on how people view it. And I'm curious too, Shanchi, when you look at those numbers that you set off the top, so vote intent right now, the Conservative Party of Canada at 41%, the Liberal Party of Canada quite far behind at 27%. Is it that Liberals or people who had voted Liberal in the past have gone to the Conservative Party of Canada or are those voters going elsewhere? Uh, They're going both to the Conservative Party and they're going to the NDP. 
So younger past liberal voters, uh, people aged 18 to 34, remember when Trudeau mania, JT mania, was all about younger voters and, and they were so excited to come out and vote for the first time. They are largely leaving the liberals and leaving Trudeau and heading to the NDP. So that's where they've defected. Older voters, more centrist voters, are actually looking at the conservatives now, um, again, on cost of living, on other issues around, around crime and justice. These tend to be less ideological issues. People want to be able to afford groceries and they want to feel safe. And all of a sudden you have a cohort of past liberal voters who say, we don't really feel like this current government is getting the job done for us. So we've seen in the last, uh, in the last uh, five years a doubling of, uh, sorry, in the last two years, sorry, Jill, uh, a doubling of the number of past liberal voters who are now leaning towards the NDP. And we're seeing almost quadruple the number of liberal, past liberal voters who are now looking towards the conservatives. But a big caveat in all of this is if the cost of living crisis starts to dissipate and, and calm down, can the conservatives sustain this momentum or are they at risk of peaking too soon? And I think that's the big question. Well, some very interesting numbers. Shachi, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much. Great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.